So today I'm reading from Galatians chapter 1, I'm reading verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, good morning, everyone. As, um, as Carl said, I'm, uh, I'm the associate pastor here. I'm still getting a bit used to, to saying that. Um, but really excited to be jumping into such a great letter with you guys today in Galatians. Um, a little bit over five years ago, I was thinking about this during the week, I started my ministry traineeship. It was called a MAP traineeship at a church in the northeast that was then called Trinity Northeast. Um, a few weeks into my traineeship, a group of us were sent out as a church plant from Trinity Northeast uh, to a suburb in Golden Grove. And it was all incredibly exciting, uh, a little bit stressful as well, you know, locking in details with a venue, inviting people to join us, uh, letterbox dropping hundreds and hundreds of homes, uh, trying to sort out things like sound gear, trying to find musicians, thinking about sermon series, how do we start up Bible study groups, uh, a lot of different things, and praying lots and lots that it wouldn't all just be a total flop, of course. Well, the first Sunday rolled around, and I was band leading and singing, uh, and I was pretty nervous this first Sunday. You know, I really wanted things to go well. Uh, and there was one thing in particular that I was really concerned about. It was that I'd mess up my welcome. It was that, you know, it was the first time that people were being welcomed into our church service, and I wanted to get it right. You know, welcome to Trinity Grove. I'd, I'd echoed in my head about a thousand times. Welcome to Trinity Grove. You know, I'd be really enthusiastic. I think that would that would be really good so that people felt very welcome at Trinity Grove. Anyway, the Sunday rolled around. Rehearsal went really well with music, still echoing in my head over and over. Welcome to Trinity Grove. You know, welcome to Trinity Grove. The countdown finished. Everyone was seated. I had a guitar in hand ready to play, a mic in front of me ready to sing and to welcome everyone to church. I opened up my mouth and with a big welcoming smile and a really enthusiastic voice, I said, welcome to Trinity Northeast. And Mike Sams, my trainer at the back, put his face in his hands. The rest of the planting team looked at me like I'd just committed murder. It was, it was bad. But of course, everyone just started laughing at me and it was okay. We moved on. Uh, and of course, like any great trainer would, Mike um, still hasn't let me forget what I did that day, welcoming people um, to Trinity Northeast, not Trinity Grove. It was one of the many uh, kind of growing pains that we had as a young church, thankfully one of those smaller, more humorous ones. Uh, but every church has those kind of growing pains. 
things can go wrong in small ways, like introducing everyone or welcoming everyone to the wrong church, uh, like the leaflet having the wrong info, or if you're me, kind of constantly forgetting to input the correct song lyrics to slides or messing up the order of service, uh, to, you know, to bigger things. Uh, like dealing with unwanted conflict within communities and families in the church, uh, having uh, big disputes over um, theological differences that turn nasty. But here at Trinity Church Unley, Trinity Church Unley, that's the right one, good, uh, we're still a young church. Right? We celebrated being three years old a few weeks ago, which is really exciting. But I wonder, however long you've been with us, whether that's from day dot or just recently, Have you experienced any of those growing pains as a church as we've thought about what it means to, you know, to be a church and as we've sought to be a people who are united by Christ doing life together side by side? I have a question for you. Uh, What do you think would be the worst thing that could happen to a young church? What would be the worst thing that could happen for us as a young church? Is the worst thing for a church to not actually be able to meet together Uh, to be barred from entrance to a building? Uh, Would the worst thing be to um, be alienated by the people around us because of our faith in Jesus, uh, to be persecuted? Or maybe that conflict in some form does enter our church. Uh, and, And I really hope that this never happens. Could the worst thing be that we lose our coffee machine and revert to international roast? I mean, come on, what would the worst thing be? What would the worst thing that could happen to us as a young church plant be? We're right at the start of a six-week series, split up a little bit by Easter, looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians, um, or more accurately, to the churches of Galatia, most likely a bunch of churches in southern Galatia that Paul and some others had started, and you can read about that in Acts chapters 12 to 13. But in this letter that Paul is writing to the Galatians, Paul is astonished. But it's not the good kind of astonishment, the good kind of amazement. Uh, Paul is astonished that the church that he helped get up off the ground is turning away from what they'd been taught, turning away from the thing that united them in the first place. Paul is worried that they are turning away from the gospel and that in doing so, they are deserting God, deserting Jesus. And Paul, as we've read, has some pretty strong words for them. Now, while this is a letter that seeks to pull the Galatians up short, that kind of says, you know, hang on, what do you think you're doing? It's also a letter of great assurance for those with faith in Jesus to read. It's a letter that teaches of the hope that we have in Christ and of the freedom that we have in belonging to him. In the coming weeks, we will look at this freedom together and what it means. Uh, We'll look at some of the opposition to that freedom that Paul came up against. We will marvel at how God has worked to save us and free us and we will look at what it looks like and think about what it looks like to use our freedom well. But before we get there, again, I ask that question for you to think about for yourselves, what is the worst thing that could happen to us as a young church? Those of you who have been here forever, those of you who are new, I wonder how you'd answer that question. Well, this morning, I think Paul makes a pretty convincing case that the worst thing that could happen in any church is that the gospel gets perverted, gets twisted, and that people turn away from it, and by doing so, turn away from God. But uh, maybe you're here this morning, and you're not actually part of a church at all, and that question doesn't really actually bug you that much. 
Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're here and you're just feeling actually really disenfranchised with the whole Christian and church thing at the moment. Maybe you're wondering, what could a letter written roughly 2,000 years ago possibly have to offer me? And it's a really good question to ask. But keep listening. Because I think Paul is pretty convinced that the answer to that question isn't just important for a young church to think through together, but for everyone to hear. See, I'd go so far as to say that this is a matter of life and death. And Paul really wants the Galatians to understand that. And it's the same thing that we need to understand today as well. Uh, Well, you were hopefully handed a leaflet as you walked in the door today. Uh, If you haven't got one, you can just go grab one, I think, from the desk, uh, just in the hallway there. Uh, But point one on that outline this morning should say, on a mission from God. On a mission from God. Uh, One of the movies I remember watching when I was a kid was the Blues Brothers. I don't know, I think there's a picture on the screen just there. Uh, Two brothers, Elwood and Jake. Um, they're trying to get their band back together in order to raise enough money to save their old orphanage from closing down. Now, there's this line that recurs kind of throughout the movie. Elwood and Jake, they want to let others know that they're on a mission from God. I can't quite get Jake's voice when he says it, but they're on a mission from God. Now, I don't know what goes through your head when you read the first few verses of Galatians 1, but I hear Paul very clearly in the voice of Elwood and Jake saying that he is on a mission from God. But whereas Elwood and Jake got their mission through a nun from the orphanage they grew up in, Paul calls himself an apostle, someone who isn't sent from a person or any person, but by Jesus Christ himself and God the Father. Now, I don't know if you've ever put a resume or CV together and have struggled to to find a reference um, for them to ring up, but Paul here has just kind of gone for it, hasn't he? Who's he put down the CV? Uh, Jesus, God. Is it a ridiculous claim, like in that movie, The Blues Brothers, or is Paul telling the truth? Well, this is something Paul spends uh, a lot of time convincing the church in Galatia of next week in chapter 2. But for now, let me say that the Bible does back up this claim and that it is true. And if you'd like something to read during the week about it, grab a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 9, and there you will read of an incredible transformation story as Paul goes from being someone who sought to destroy Christians, the church, and the Christian message, to someone who Jesus himself spoke as, as becoming, in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, his instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And that is what Paul is claiming in verse 1 of this chapter today, that he is that instrument or that apostle, sent not from a man but from Jesus himself to proclaim his name. Now, if you've read one of Paul's letters before, you know that the first few verses in Galatians are actually a pretty common greeting from Paul. He likes to introduce himself as an apostle. And part of that is just so that people uh, know which Paul is writing to them. You know, is it Paul from, um, from, uh, you know, just down the road? Paul the barber? Is it Paul from, you know, dancing lessons? No, it's the apostle Paul, the one who helped start their church as he proclaimed the name of Jesus. It's that Paul. But the other reason that Paul introduces himself that way is so that those reading his words understand that he isn't just someone writing them out of the blue, but it's someone that we should probably listen to, someone who's been tasked by Jesus himself to proclaim his name. And what Paul wants the church in Galatia to hear, what he wants us to hear in his greeting, right at the start of his letter, is what he proclaimed to them about Jesus. He writes in verse 3, 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. And grace and peace, they're both pretty Christian words, hey? What is Paul trying to get across here? If you've read any of Paul's letters, you'll know that he starts most of them with exactly the same phrase of grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But why does he do that? If you've ever received an email from me, you'll usually read the words, you know, hope you're having a great day, something like that will come there. And that is genuine, I'd like to say. I really do hope that you are having a great day. But as I was thinking about it this week, that greeting kind of started sounding like a bit of a generic greeting. Maybe I should change it a bit. I'll I'll try to change it this week. A greeting like, kind of like, "Oh, oh, how are you going? Before kind of launching into what you really want to launch into. Is that what's happening here with Paul? I don't think so. The terms grace and peace, while just two words, are words that are actually bursting at the seams with good news. It's because in these two words, the gospel of salvation from sin that Paul has been called by Jesus to proclaim can be seen. Paul writes, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Paul points his readers to the most incredible act of love that has ever been witnessed, that has ever been heard of. An act of love in which we see both the grace of God, which is another way of saying his undeserved favour, and the peace it brings, both on display together in Jesus, who gave himself over to die on the cross to pay for our sins, once and for all, who came to rescue us. There are two things, especially in these verses, that we should take note of. See, the first is that we see who we are, and the second is that we see who Jesus is and what he has done. The first is that we see who we are, the second is that we see who Jesus is and what he has done. Firstly, who are we? Verse 4 tells us that we are people in need of rescuing. People in need of rescuing, helpless to do anything to save ourselves. What is Paul writing about here? He's writing about the reality of sin, about the reality of God's judgment because of sin. That because of sin, because of people's rejection of God, they are chained to the penalty for their sin. I'll say that again. Because of sin, because of people's rejection of God, they are chained to that penalty for their sin, being God's just judgment for the wrongs we have committed against Him. Totally helpless. Standing guilty before a perfect God, deserving of His judgment for our rejection of Him. Who are we? Helpless people, guilty people, in need of rescuing. But thank God for Jesus, along with Paul. Because who is Jesus? Well, in that same verse, we read that he is our rescuer. Jesus has rescued us by giving himself over to pay the penalty for our sins. He has done this in his death on the cross that pays that penalty. He did this to rescue us. To rescue us from sin and from the punishment that would have otherwise been ours to face. Jesus, in his death on the cross, faced the full penalty that we deserved. Paid the price for our sins, so that those who put their trust in him and in what he has done no longer stand guilty before God, but are made right with God and are given life in the age to come. 
Jesus is our rescuer so that we are no longer helpless people standing guilty before God. Now, why did he do it? Well, not because of anything we've done. We read that as well. We were chained to the penalty of our sin. So why did he do it? Well, there's that first word again, grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor poured out for us by a God who loves us so much that he would die for us so we don't have to pay that penalty. See, this is a rescue plan that shows the depths of God's love, a depth that we could not possibly reach the bottom of. And Paul wants the churches in Galatia to grasp the reality of this gospel, of this good news, of salvation in Jesus, who is our rescuer. On verses 3 to 5, John Stott helpfully summarizes for us what grace and peace mean in the gospel. He writes this, it should be on the screen. The nature of salvation is peace or reconciliation. Peace with God, peace with men, peace within. The source of this salvation is grace, God's free favor, irrespective of any human merit or works, his loving kindness to the undeserving. And this grace and peace flow from the Father and the Son together. See, Paul's greeting of grace and peace sets the gospel at the forefront of his letter and shows Paul's desire that this gospel of salvation, this gospel of grace and peace, is something that his readers know and understand. This is what Paul wants everyone to know, the good news of salvation in Jesus alone. This is the gospel. This is what Paul's mission was, to share this good news. And from verse 6 onwards, we read about why we should never listen to any other gospel. It's point two in your outlines. Paul wants the Galatians to know that there is only one gospel and they should never turn from it. There's only one gospel, they should never turn from it. I don't know if you can think of a time when a parent or maybe a teacher asked you <clears throat> to do one thing, but you did you know, completely the opposite. Uh, for me, I used to go into primary schools to teach the drums, and I had one rule for my student. Um, once the lesson was over, you have to put down your drumsticks, and you have to stop playing, okay? We're going to chat a little bit about what your homework is, I'm going to make sure you remember what your homework is, and then I'm going to write it down for you. Well, one day, I was doing this, chatting to a student, and I look up, and I see him with a drumstick held up right in front of the cymbal, about to just smash it as hard as he could. And I looked up, and he saw me looking, <clears throat> and he just had this complete look of sheer and utter terror on his face that he'd been caught out. And I said, like, don't do it. It's not worth it. Put the, put the drumstick down. And he was like, oh, just looking at me. And then just the most amazing thing happened. He put, no, he didn't put it down. He started smashing the cymbal as hard as he could, looking at me with this look of terror on his face, the whole entire time. I was amazed that he'd done something that was so obviously against what I'd told him to do. And like from the look on his face, he was pretty surprised that he'd done it as well. We had a good chat after. Um, well, Paul writes in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You know, Paul went through southern Galatia proclaiming the gospel and the churches in Galatia were formed because people had accepted and responded to that good news. <clears throat> They'd put their trust in Jesus. But now it's like Paul turns around, looks over at that drum kit and there are the churches of Galatia, drumstick held up high. But of course it's so much worse than that. 
Because for them to be turning to a different gospel than the one Paul has preached to them means that they're not deserting Paul. I mean, Paul doesn't really care about that. The one they're deserting is God. Turning from the one who has rescued them from the penalty of sin by his death. And Paul is saying, this different gospel that you're turning to, stop listening to it. There's really no gospel at all. There is only one gospel and you're turning away from it and by doing so, you're deserting God. And how could they turn from such good news? It seems kind of idiotic, doesn't it, when we first realize that this is what has happened. But in verse 7, Paul gives us the answer. He writes, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. A group of people have gone throughout the churches in Galatia and are causing people to doubt the gospel that Paul first shared with them. Now, whoever this group is, uh, they've started to pervert the gospel. So far in the passage today, at least, we don't know what that perversion is. But later on in this series, we'll look at it in depth. For now, uh, what this likely looked like was a group of Jews who had entered the church claiming to have authority from a respected church leader and who were trying to convince Christians that in order for them to truly be saved, they had to become Jews. What this means is that they had to be circumcised according to the law. They had to gain their salvation apart from Jesus' death on a cross and belief in him. In other words, they were saying that there was more that needed to happen than Jesus' death on a cross to bring salvation. And Paul has some very strong words to say about them, and not just them, but anyone who seeks to add to or take away from the gospel in any way. Paul writes from verse 8, But if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. What's Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that the gospel is unchanging. He's saying that the gospel that he and the other apostles proclaimed about Jesus is the one and only gospel. The Christians in Galatia have already heard it. There is no other. There is no adding to it. There is no taking away from it. And anyone who tries to change that, even Paul himself, if he tries to change that, even if an angel from heaven appears and tries to change that, Paul says, let them be under God's curse. In other words, let them be devoted to total and utter destruction. I mean, these are pretty strong words. This is what's at stake when a false gospel is preached. When it's a matter of life and death, of either accepting Jesus as the one who can rescue you from the penalty of sin, or saying you don't need him, God wants us to have life. Anyone who would put that at risk by changing and perverting the gospel is in serious trouble. These words are a massive word of warning to watch out for the false gospel. There is only one. But while they are words of warning... They are also words that should bring comfort and assurance to any who have put their trust solely in Jesus Christ. Why comfort? Because what Paul is saying here is that the gospel that we have received, the gospel that has called us to put our faith in Jesus as the one who can rescue us from the penalty of sin, is unchanging. And if that gospel is unchanging, then our salvation 
Our life in him is assured. There is no more that is needed. I mean, roughly 2,000 years have gone by since this letter was written, since the gospel of Jesus was first proclaimed. And this gospel that was true then continues to be true today. The world has changed, hasn't it? Nations have risen and fallen. New cultures have been born, continue to change and morph. Societies as well kind of grow and shrink. Uh, New world powers arise and then are crushed and go away. But one thing remains, the gospel. The complete, unchanging gospel. And what a thing to be able to cling to in the storm of a world that is constantly changing around us. The truth of salvation in Jesus because of what he accomplished on the cross for us. And if you're among us this morning and you haven't put your trust in Jesus as the one who can save you, who can give you life, we'll hear the words of Paul again from verse 3 about Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. There is no other way to enter into right relationship with God other than through our rescuer, Jesus, who died for our sins. He came to rescue you. Will you turn to him? Will you trust in what he's done for you? These words of Paul should be a great comfort to us. But they should also raise in us a level of weariness. Now, Paul is writing back against a group of Jews who were trying to convince Christians that the gospel Paul proclaimed is unfinished, that they also need to become Jews themselves, that they needed to be circumcised. Um, Now, I'm pretty sure no one in our church is going around telling people that they need to be circumcised. And if you are, you need to stop it. It's weird. Um, But remember Paul's words of verse 7. They don't say, some people are trying to add to the gospel a works-oriented salvation, even though that's what we see happening here from this particular group of people. Paul writes... Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. See, it's that twisting and perversion of the gospel that the churches in Galatia need to be wary of. And it's the same thing that we need to be wary of as well. Watching out for counterfeit gospels, for any other gospel, which really isn't any gospel at all, Paul writes, that teaches that we need more than Jesus' death to pay the penalty for our sin and give us life in the age to come, life with Jesus. That's the third thing on your outlines this morning, counterfeit gospels. What does it look like to pervert the gospel and how can we make sure we don't accept a counterfeit gospel? Well, for the church in Galatia, the perversion of that gospel, as we've read, looked like adding something to the gospel that should not have been there. The church was told, you need to be circumcised and become a Jew in order to truly be saved. And we don't see this happening today, do we? But that works-oriented salvation... That is still something that we need to be wary of. Saying that you must turn to Jesus, you must have faith in him and do something else. If we ever hear someone say, to be saved, you must turn to Jesus, trust in him and insert any other statement here to receive salvation, then know that that is a perversion of the gospel. What could we possibly contribute to our salvation that means more than the death of Jesus? The answer is nothing. And if you're here this morning thinking that you need to contribute something other than what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf, hear Paul, that is not the gospel. That is not the good news of salvation in Jesus. Trust only in Jesus, not yourself and what you can do. 
Be wary of that counterfeit gospel that adds anything to what Jesus has already done on your behalf. But it's not just adding to the gospel that we need to be wary of. Remember, it's the perversion of the gospel in any way that Paul is writing against. And that can also happen by taking away from the gospel. And I think in our culture today, this is far more likely to happen, far more likely to sneak into our churches. Now, it could look a little bit like this. Proclaiming a gospel that only talks about the acceptance of God while dismissing the reality of his judgment and our need for a rescuer. I'll say that again. Proclaiming a gospel that only talks about the acceptance of God while dismissing the reality of his judgment because of our sin and our need for a rescuer. See, no one likes hearing that they've done something wrong. It's not pleasant news to hear that you were in trouble for something, and our culture hates the idea that someone else might be judging what they are doing. After all, shouldn't we be free to do as we choose if it's not hurting someone else? What have I done against God that he would be angry with me about? The temptation, I think, can be to proclaim a gospel that says that God is so loving and so accepting that it doesn't actually really matter what you believe about him as long as you try to do the right thing, as long as you try to be a loving person. On this view in particular, Tim Keller helpfully writes that while this sounds extremely open-minded, very accepting, it's actually intolerant. It's intolerant of God's grace, God's undeserved favour, This is because it firstly teaches that good works are enough to get to God. It teaches that good works are enough to get to God. Now, if this is the case, if good works are enough to get to God, it means that Jesus' death on the cross was completely unnecessary because all it takes is virtue. It also means that for anyone who has done something bad in their life as judged by our society's standards, that they are left completely without any hope. Because there is no way for that deed to be punished by someone else other than them. The thing is, the Bible makes a pretty convincing case that that's actually all of us. But it's not by the standards of our culture that we're judged by. God is the judge of what is right and what is wrong. And everyone has done the wrong thing before him. Who is left to pay the penalty for that if Jesus hasn't paid it for us? Well, if we don't accept that Jesus has done it for us and that punishment is left on our shoulders and no matter how well we've tried to live our lives, we will fall short. No amount of good living stops the fact that we have still done wrong. We need a rescuer and praise God along with Paul in verse 5 that we have one in Jesus. I asked the question at the start, what is the worst thing that could happen to us as a young church? And I think Paul has answered that question for us. The worst thing would be for us to allow the gospel to be perverted in our midst, to turn away from the gospel, and in allowing this to happen, desert the one who called us to live in the grace of Christ. So hold fast to the truth of the one gospel. In it is true freedom, in it is life, is peace with God. In it is complete assurance of salvation in Jesus. Paul's words to the churches in Galatia are spoken out of love. And it's this same love that Paul shows that we should show each other. See, Paul isn't interested in people-pleasing, in sharing a soft message that is just really easy to digest. He wants people to understand what's really at stake. 
that this is a life or death situation and the gospel brings life. Let's love one another by pointing one another always to that great reality of life in Christ. Over the coming weeks, uh, we'll get to dig uh, deep into applying this gospel to our own lives, uh, to our relationships with, uh, with each other at church. Uh, but for now, let's remember together that there is only one gospel, a gospel of salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. And let's never turn from it and let's always praise God for it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are as our loving God that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have life in his name, that we could have reconciliation and peace with you. Please help us to never stray from the truth of the one gospel of salvation through Jesus and not anything we can do, Lord. Amen.